It all comes down to networking. And so that I think is one of the most important lessons that anybody can learn. And don't go out to meet people to think, how can you use this person in the future? Don't do that. It's so important to go and meet new people. You never know how that connection is going to impact and influence your life. So that's what my biggest advice to folks, and I give it frequently, is say yes and try to see how you can network and do other projects outside of your current work so that you just get to meet people and get exposed to new areas. Again, I did not think I would start a business, but here we are because I started to just slowly be introduced to new things. Welcome to PhD to Industry, the podcast that empowers graduate students, PhDs, postdocs, and academics to explore and succeed in fulfilling non-academic careers. I'm your host, Aditya, and I'm here to provide you with insights and practical advice by interviewing industry leaders and experts each week. You can find show notes and key learnings from this episode and numerous other helpful resources at phd 2 industry substack.com in today's episode we're joined by jen she's a phd in environmental science from nyu she's a faculty member at columbia business school executive education consumer representative on the fda's committees and she's also the founder and ceo of savvy cooperative she was named one of entrepreneur magazine's 50 most daring entrepreneurs of 2018 for savvy cooperative which is the first patient-owned public Benefit Co-op. In today's episode, we cover Jen's journey to PhD, how she started Savvy Cooperative, and her passion of amplifying voice for patients that led her to start Savvy, and the challenges in industry today in the field of patient empowerment and patient-facing technology development. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. For some context before we jump in, um, how we cross paths for the listeners. I was uh, building patient applications a few years ago in AstraZeneca with my team. And at that point, we ran into this challenge of patient access, where we had very specific eligibility criteria for patients and we were struggling to find patients. And it took us sometimes months to find a very specific patient to do the product discovery and testing. And at that point came across Savvy. That's I think first when we met with your team and yourself. And it was incredible because we were finding patients through Savvy within days with very specific eligibility criteria. We'd really like to dig into a lot about Savvy, but first we'd love to start with your story and perhaps your academic journey. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about your childhood and your path to your PhD? I've had a meandering path, and I, I certainly would not have expected it to land me where it currently is, but that's the fun of life. It's been an interesting ride. First of all, why I'm in healthcare to begin with, I identify as a patient, so I grew up with chronic illness, and so that's truly what you know always interests me in the healthcare sphere. I grew up with a father who is an engineer and a mother in medicine, and so I thought I would be a doctor originally because I was like traditionally one of those sick kids that wanted to go on to become a doctor, but I became disenchanted with the, with our system and the fact that my physicians couldn't even medicine that they wanted to because of other institutional barriers, things like this. So I studied biomedical engineering and thought, Hey, I'll combine the two areas that I had some knowledge about through my parents and whatnot. 
I was very drawn to engineering and healthcare. And so I went down that route. And then through some other sort of securitous roots of wanting to take some time off based on other things that were going on in my life, I didn't go immediately into grad school. I was actually a Pilates instructor during that time as I was just trying to figure things out. But truly, it was actually a through line. What perhaps is not in my prominently displayed on like my LinkedIn is I was actually also a dance major. So I studied dance and I was always wanting to try to understand how to, how the body function in this world that we're in, because I grew up with arthritis. So I grew up with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, which is what brought me into then wanting to study human factors, because Mm -hmm. as somebody whose body maybe didn't work the same way as my peers, I thought, how can we actually adapt the world to make it more accessible and equitable for those that have maybe different abilities and different challenges? So after after undergrad and after doing Pilates, again, trying to help people who had injuries and things like this be able to rehab their bodies, I was drawn to human factors. So I studied ergonomics and biomechanics and human factors at NYU and got my master's there. And then I continued on and I got my PhD, which is technically in environmental medicine, but that's a pretty loaded term and area of study. I studied essentially what else affects somebody's health and health behaviors outside of the typical clinical factors. So that's how I viewed environmental medicine is what else is affecting somebody else's health from social support to access to self-efficacy to their activity levels, all sorts of different types of aspects. And that's what I got my PhD. What a sequence of events starting all the way from your childhood looks like influenced your PhD and even what you do today. I see a common thread across from all the way from childhood to today. And I think your work today and through your PhD impacting and bringing voice to a lot of people like yourself. So regarding your pursuit of your, how much of that was driven by a desire to contribute to the cause versus a academic pursuit? Yeah, I did not go into academia like with the dream of being like a tenured professor mm-hmm. and all of these things. I love teaching. However, that just, I don't know, to me, I think there were a couple reasons why I went for the PhD. Number one, working in healthcare. I knew if I was competing for grants that having a terminal degree makes you more competitive against an MD that could be applying for a grant. And so there was certainly that aspect, knowing that would be helpful professionally. I think too, another thing that relates back to my my childhood of chronic illness and always being told I couldn't do things and missing lots of school when I was younger, I actually had to withdraw from my undergrad degree because I got really sick and then ended up graduating early because I just always out to prove people wrong. So I think in some ways I know that I have a, a bit of a chip on my shoulder about that. And so having that terminal degree, I just wanted to be able to do for my own sort of a self-concept around being that sick kid who was told they couldn't do it. And so that was certainly part of my story with it. And in a particular field that was so niche of biomechanics and human factors and environmental medicine, it's not like there's tons of programs out there to begin with, let alone then lots of people hiring professors in this area. And I just also have never been that person that's had their entire life plan, as you can hear from my background. (laughs) And so therefore, it wasn't that I had the end in mind. I just knew I love learning. And so I've always wanted to continue that. And I love research and I kept going. 
Great. And as you went closer to wrapping up your PhD, and you, I know you didn't have a, perhaps a very long-term plan, but it really seems like you did to me at the moment when I look back. When you were wrapping up your PhD, did you have a transition plan, at least for the immediate next step? Did you start savvy right after that? Or was it a few years after? Or what was your transition story coming out of your PhD? <laughs> also pretty eclectic. During my PhD, I started doing consulting mm. on the side, just because you can only move as fast as your committee re reviews your work. And so there were certainly times that I'm here twiddling my thumbs until they can tell me all the ways I have to edit <laughs> the work yeah. that I'm doing. And so I started consulting and that became just an avenue of revenue and to use my brain in other ways. I was also very involved in other external committees and consortiums. And so I was doing a lot of that kind of work as well with professional societies or others that were doing research that were not affiliated with my PhD or mm -hmm. my school. Doing Through doing that kind of work that I started to make other connections and other areas that I could continue research. And so through doing that is what then started involving me. I got my PhD at NYU, and then I started doing other research through Columbia University Medical Center. And so I was on faculty there to do work in that area. And then was also doing consulting. So to me, that was enough of a plan of, oh, right. I have these, my, my a foot over here and a foot in there and consulting in academia. Yeah. And so I did not get like, uh, I didn't do a postdoc. I didn't do a yeah. separate full-time job. So I just pieced together and that was sufficient for me. Great. One of the things I hear from a lot of grad students is they don't know the possibilities of opportunities beyond their degree. And looks like a lot of this organically developed for you. But do you have any advice on encouraging PhDs or graduate students on what how could they explore that and how could they learn more about all the possibilities that exist on the other side? To me, if I look back at my, what I know is a short career in relatively speaking, yeah. it all comes down to networking too. Yeah. And so that I think is one of the most important lessons that anybody can learn and don't go out to meet people to think, how can you use this person in the future? Don't do that. It's so important to go and meet new people. You never know how that connection is going to impact and influence your life. And so that's what I think through the kind of work that I was doing through these other sort of research organizations and consortiums and volunteer work, tons of volunteer work, but it was interesting to me and I met interesting people and it opened doors and different types of collaborations. And I'm probably somebody that tends to overextend themselves. So I would always say yes and get involved in different ways. But I think it's paid dividends in hindsight at how those different opportunities opened new opportunities for me as well. So that's what my biggest advice to folks, and I give it frequently, is say yes and try to see how you can network and do other projects outside of your current work so that you just get to meet people and get exposed to new areas. Yeah. Again, I did not think I would start a business, but here we are because I started to just slowly be introduced to new things. That's actually a good transition to talking about your business and your company. So I saw on your LinkedIn, you said entrepreneur by necessity. Could you talk a little bit about what was that necessity that drove you to start Savvy? Truthfully, when I look back, I do see that I am entrepreneurial in starting other things, be it 
other volunteer work and committees, but I never identified myself as like a business entrepreneur. I didn't study business. I have no business background, but I saw the need. And what that was through my professional opportunities, be it in industry and academia and with regulatory affairs and otherwise, and doing a lot of patient advocacy, I heard my peers from a professional side and colleagues talking about patients, but not talking with them. And so, because I'm working in healthcare, everyone's trying to solve problems and truly fabulous people that wanted to solve these things for patients, but they didn't have all the information. So they were guessing and oftentimes guessing wrong. And because I'm very open about my patient experiences, people would say, Hey, Jen, you're a patient. Will you weigh in on this project or that committee? And at first I was flattered, but when they kept coming back to me, it really signaled a diversity issue. As somebody who's white with a PhD, lives in New York City, that was not going to be a representative perspective. So I started organically playing matchmaker with the patient communities I was already involved with. And when I would say, hey, does anybody else want to weigh in? I was flooded by patients that wanted to provide their perspective. And so that was the aha moment of, oh, Gosh, researchers and companies and innovators need to talk to patients and caregivers want to share. There's just no, there's not a clear avenue for how to do that. So it's like, I can solve for this. And it's not that I necessarily was looking to drop the other things I was working on and do this, but I felt compelled to, because when I saw that this was actually a business opportunity, not just a, a charity work. I thought, wow, somebody else is going to see this as a way of making money off of patients. And Mm -hmm. as somebody who really cares about patients, I want to make sure that this is done in an equitable and ethical way. And so I felt compelled to take that on, to protect patients and make sure that they were fairly valued when they do participate in this kind of work. So that's why I say, yeah, entrepreneur by necessity of I saw the problem and I couldn't look away and risk somebody else coming in and doing it really poorly. So here we are. What a story. I can attest to your passion, both for doing this right and providing voice to patients. So it makes a lot of sense that you also felt the need to start Savvy and then find the voice for various patients and then work on the cause. I'm curious about your model, if you would mind sharing what a co-op means, and Savvy is, I believe, a patient-owned a co-op. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, I was really looking for a way that we could, as I mentioned before, to equitably value patients. And I didn't yes. want to create another company that was going to be extractive of patients with yeah. nothing in return. And so through our work, through the co-op and the ways that we engage with patients, period, we really wanted to make them know that they're valued. And so through doing that, patients at Savvy are paid money for their contributions. And also we really interact and partner and work directly with the communities that we're trying to serve so that their voice is heard not only in industry, but in our own work as well, because that is just as important to us. And so that's really where the model came from is how can we, what we preach and make sure that patients are valued in our work as well. Great, great. That makes a lot of sense. And would you be able to share how big is your network right now? I should know that number, but part of it is that when people ask that question, they're usually meaning like, how big is your panel? 
like a patient panel in our network. And that's actually not how our model works at all. So that's why I don't need to know that number. Our model is truly about equitably leveraging our community's community. And that's why we're so good at what we do is because when we work with our clients and they say, hey, we're looking for patients who meet XYZ criteria, we go to our network and we say, here's who we're looking for, find them. And then our patients who we already connect with go into their Facebook groups, their faith-based organizations listserv, their neighbor, and they reach out in culturally sensitive ways. So we're like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon of like patient advocacy that somebody knows somebody. And so it's more, you can think of us more like a fed network of different patient communities than as a patient panel of X number of patients. Makes sense on why that model may make it difficult to put a number on it, but I can also attest to the efficiency with how this model works as part of our collaboration previously, because I remember we had very specific eligibility criteria for some cancer patients that we were looking for, like, you know, certain age, certain demographic, even location-based. And Savvy was able to come up with those patients within two days sometimes, which was incredible to see. That's a, I think, model. I don't think this kind of model has been used, especially for patient discovery or sorry, patient like recruitment or voice before this is a unique model. Certainly not that I know of that this is yeah. has been or is being done anywhere else. That's great. Great. So one of the other things I couldn't help but notice was three years ago at JP conference, you showed up in a hospital gown and I think you were on stage in a hospital gown. So I was curious if you could tell us a little bit more about why you decided to do that and and uh, what was the outcome. I think the first thing to know is that I don't embarrass easily. And as you picked up, I'm wildly passionate about what I do and I'm willing to then make a statement to do. So at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, it is traditionally a conference for investors. Kicks off January. Yeah like clockwork, you know, it's January because everybody goes to San Francisco to talk about what are they going to invest in. And I've been going to that conference since I started Savvy, but seven years ago. And I was always struck by the lack of patient perspective. And I've been told year over year, oh, this is an investor conference. This isn't a place for patients. You guys stay out of it. We'll figure things out. And there's a different place But to me, this is just a really poor business decision to leave out the end user if you're trying to make investments. That's where like you can actually be socially responsible and profitable at the same time. And so I wore the hospital gown as a statement to say, all you people here in suits who are talking about patients are missing that critical insight from the end user. And healthcare is not like other sectors because it's so complex and it's a multi-stakeholder. You have people who are prescribing, those who are paying, and those who then have to decide whether or not something is approved are all different stakeholders than the end user. And if we do not include patients and caregivers in the decision-making process and the co-design process, then we could just be making investments in the wrong places. So that's why I did it. I did not know that it was going to get as much traction and still be something that lingers on to this day. I'm certainly happy that it raised awareness. Yeah. And that's really what it was about, is just making sure 
understood that patients and their perspective are yeah. unique and you need to talk to the right patients at the right time to make these decisions. Yeah, no, I if yeah, definitely statement was made. <laughs> and I think that was a memorable kind of picture when you see a lot of people in suits and yourself in a hospital gown in this on stage. And I think that just the visual itself spoke what you wanted to express. So that was very uh, smart of you to pull that off. I wanted to touch a little bit about the business benefits of including patients. You covered that briefly as well, that this is not only a morally and equitable thing to do to include patients in the kind of creation of products, but also it's pretty commonplace to include the user as part of the design and development, right? So why do you think it doesn't happen as much in a patient environment? What, where is the barrier there? Because it makes sense in multiple aspects, but in reality, there seems to be a disconnect. I just alluded to some of it, right? That it is a multi-stakeholder industry and therefore yeah. people ask doctors or payers or regulators, what do you think patients want or the sponsors themselves, right? And we forget that the priorities are different. And now relating back to academia, if I can remember back that far, that is the kind of work that I was studying is patient-centered yeah. outcomes and what matters to patients. So I was doing research that was looking at which outcomes were most important to the providers, but also to the patients and to caregivers. Yeah. And guess what? They're not the same between those different stakeholders. Yeah. And if we don't measure what matters to patients, then if we think about drug development, it takes what, 10, 15 years to bring a drug to market? And yeah. if we measured the wrong thing that doesn't matter to patients, yeah. then we just wasted a whole bunch of money and time and resources. Yes. And so that's why I think it is so imperative to do that because you can literally be wasting just billions of dollars. We see this when drugs fail because they didn't measure the things that matter. Or we see this a lot too with like devices and yeah. they're too cumbersome for patients to use. And so therefore they don't and they get pulled from the market. So that's why we say, hey, you're going to pay now or you're going to pay later. And I don't mean to be so flippant about it, but if you don't take the time to do the work up front, then you're going to be very disappointed in the end when your product doesn't solve a real problem that patients are having, or it's adding additional burden to them. We saw a lot of this happen with digital health. We said, oh, let's create another app and we'll do telehealth. We'll do this. We'll do that. None of it integrates together. The burden's on the patient. We call them non-compliant when the problem is they were all designed in silos and that's not how a patient's life exists. So that's why it becomes such a business imperative to get these kind of insights. And traditionally, when people had gone to other stakeholders, they may say, we're all patients. And I will be the first to push back at a statement like this. I appreciate it from trying to garner the empathy and say, we need to all care about this. But when we say we are all patients, it has a way of silencing those who have the specific experiences that are not being addressed, yeah. that we need to hear from. That's why I actually have seen that while more people have an actual initiative or are trying to double down on diversity, equity, and inclusion in types of yeah. initiatives, we see that more patient engagement and patient insights are happening because where we used to say, oh, we're all patients, it's harder for people to say, oh, we're all African-American patients on Medicaid or Medicare living in the rural. 
so that now people are seeing they actually have to go out and get that kind of specific insight. So I think that's helping patient insights as a whole now that people care about DEI. Yeah, this is all very intertwined in a lot of various aspects of what's happening. And I'm curious from your experience, you've been doing this for more than a decade, like even longer, perhaps. If you think back on like perhaps 10, 15 years ago, where the industry was in terms of valuing patient insights and voices to where we are, like where do you project us going into the next maybe five years or 10 years? Do you Are you optimistic about where we are heading or are you concerned? I'm optimistic. I think I've always been a pragmatic optimist, carefully yeah. <laughs> proceeding, but I have seen progress. I think the first decade of patient centricity, if you will, was people just talking about it, but not actually taking any action. And then when I, even when I started Savvy and we pay patients for their insights, there was a lot of pushback there. Oh gosh, we can't possibly pay patients. That's coercion. Oh, but you can pay physicians and other stakeholders. So we've gotten over that as well. So that's a plus. What I see the, the current challenge is that people do not schedule or budget doing patient insights into their current work. And so everything's last minute and there's no budget. And I, shrugging my shoulders here because it takes time and resources to do it. It does not take that much time or that many resources in the scheme of product development or developing out yeah. services. So it still is worth it. So that's, I think, the struggle of people seeing the value and going, oh, shoot, we just didn't plan correctly. Yeah. So my goal in the future is that this just becomes part of the product or service development process across the healthcare ecosystem, that it becomes so commonplace. And we've worked with pharma companies, other digital health companies to create even roadmaps for some of the big pharma companies of this is how you do drug development. These are the different touch points from when which you should get patient insights so that it doesn't get skipped over because you forgot to do it. So that's what I really want to see in the future is more of that. Yeah, totally. And that resonates with being on the other side of product development myself. A lot of the times it's glossed over up until the last moment, very unfortunate, but that does happen a lot and it's too late. Even though the awareness may be there, the intention may be there, sometimes there's lack of action, unfortunately. I'm curious about the regulators and how, if there's any regulations that exists or upcoming that will embed the need for patient voice to be infused in the development process and even earlier in the stage would be better. Is there something like that happening in, in the regulations currently? Well, certainly the FDA has had their sort of patient engagement, we call them guidelines, and they also came out with diversity, equity, and inclusion guidelines as well, saying, hey, these things need to happen. And that's wonderful. And the DEI initiatives is much newer, and we're excited that they've put that out. However, the FDA, and I can't speak for the EMA or other organizations. I also want to make clear, I can't speak for the FDA. I'm just sharing because I'm more knowledgeable about U.S. regulations. But they stop short about telling you how to do it. They just identify that it's important and you need to do it. Yeah. But I actually think this is appropriate. This is where people typically are like, oh gosh, just tell me the perfect way to do patient engagement and I'll do it. But there's no one-size-fits-all model. So I do think that it's on a case-by-case -case basis. What are you doing? What part of your development are you? What's the patient population? How should we think about getting insights? Are you getting insights about what they care about protocol development, about the digital tools that they're going to use during the trial or as a companion app, you name it. So 
we really need to think about it on a more nuanced basis. So all I can say is, yes, they've made, put a sort of a in the ground that these are important, but they leave it up to those companies or researchers to figure out how to do it. Got it. That's insightful. And I think that's, like you said, realistic pragmatism. But yeah, that that's, I think, the kind of current state of where we are. I had one last question before we moved on to the closing stages. So is there a product or any service or anything that you've used that you've seen that you go on and think that, okay, they did patient empowerment good. Like they like have designed a product well to incorporate a patient voice and kind of makes you just see it through the product or service. Is there anything like that? I can't say it's anything that I've personally used for my own health. I have some words for some of the people who make the products that I use. However, that's savvy because we work across the whole ecosystem. It's been really great to see the work. Even I can share AstraZeneca. You all over there did a great job when you were there and they continue to do great work to make sure that there's a very methodical way of getting iterative patient feedback and integrating it into the product development. We see this also with some of our digital therapeutic companies, because again, you have a digital product. So that's where it's nice that the designers and people are coming over from the tech industry tend to understand iterative design and getting user feedback. And so I'm grateful that they have crossed over into healthcare and can bring that perspective. So we see that happening. Another one that I can share, we helped Amazon with their Alexa devices to Mm. make sure that they're understandable by people with stutters and stammers. So we recruited those patients who did the user testing to ultimately impact the sort of patch to the feature there. So it's really cool to see more of this happening. I think in the drug development space, it's a bit slower, but we're certainly seeing more and more progress. Great. That's a great example. And nice shout out to my former (laughs) company, (laughs) AstraZeneca. Great. So I think that's primarily a lot of the topics I wanted to cover today. I would love to move into a quick lightning round where I'll ask you some casual questions and then we can close for today. First question is, if you could eat only one food for the rest of your life, what would that be? Maybe bananas. I love good banana. Great. What's your favorite recent TV or movie show? Oh gosh, I don't watch that many much TV, but I did watch White Lotus and it is quite entertaining. Very nice. I haven't watched that yet, but I've heard a lot of people say I need to start watching that. What's your next travel destination if you have any in mind? I always have travel destinations for work. So next up is Austin for South by Southwest. On a personal note, maybe I want to go to New Zealand next. So I'll put that on the list. Very nice. And the final one, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? Don't pet a cat backwards. <laughs> I like it. Awesome. <laughs> that, that's amazing. <laughs> great. Did you want to say anything else about that? Or... No, I think okay. that we should just leave it at that. That's great advice. <laughs> love it. I love it. Love it. All right. So that brings us to the end for today. So I'm really glad we were able to do this today. And again, thank you so much for giving me the time. And I hope a lot of people hearing your stories and what you've said today will inspire people. So I'm looking forward to that and I'm hoping for that. And before we close, where could people find you online and how can listeners be useful to you or Savvy? You can certainly find me personally online, Jen Horanjeff, usually a J Horanjeff on various platforms or certainly on LinkedIn. My parents did not bless me with the last 
easily searchable, but you will find me. And then otherwise, you can see our work at Savvy Cooperative, which is our website is Savvy.coop. I did not know I had to specify this so much when I started the company, but Savvy is with two V's, not two A's. And we would love to stay connected with you all. And if there's any ways that we can work and collaborate in the future, I would love that too. Awesome. Thank you, Jen. It is my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you found that valuable. If you'd like to tune in to similar future episodes, please subscribe. You can also find detailed show notes and key learnings from this episode and numerous other helpful resources at phd2industry.substack.com. Thank you for listening and hope to see you in the next episode.